You're listening to the Film Festival Secrets Podcast with me, Chris Holland. This is the first episode of a new season of the podcast. I'm currently holding a fundraising campaign to record and release more episodes of this season at GetMoreSecrets.com. Uh, Seed and Spark and Film Freeway have been great with early support for the campaign. Please do visit them at SeedAndSpark.com and FilmFreeway.com to learn how they support filmmakers and film festivals. Please also do visit the campaign to become part of the community and to listen in on episodes as they're recorded. All of that's at GetMoreSecrets.com. My guest this week is John Gann, founder and director of the DC Shorts Film Festival. That festival, held in Washington, D.C., is beloved by filmmakers for its willingness to provide feedback on films that are submitted. And John has become beloved by his colleagues for his business sense, his emphasis on working with filmmakers, and his willingness to share his knowledge and experience, some good, some bad, uh, with other festival producers. I talked to John on the internet. Uh, He was sitting in his office in D.C., I was in Atlanta, and a dozen or so filmmakers and fellow festival producers listened in on the call. We started the call by talking about his new book, which is for people who want to start a film festival. I think part of it is when I started DC Shorts 12 years ago, there was a vacuum. I was in a vacuum. I didn't know how to start a film festival. I don't think um, there were no resources for me to really go to. Um, I basically modeled it after every bad thing I saw at other film festivals. I was a filmmaker first, and I had traveled the world uh, attending dozens of festivals, and I just took note of things that they did that I thought were sort of counterproductive or mean-spirited towards filmmakers. And so when I decided to start DC Shorts, I just basically said, I don't know what to do, but I know what not to do, so I'm just going to make sure I avoid that, and <laughs> hopefully the rest will work. Um, but since that time, I, know I do a lot of consulting with festivals, um, I do a lot of work with this new IFP Festival Forum, which is forming its own uh, organization. It's going to be a, the first U.S.-based uh, film festival associations for uh, uh, festival directors and programmers. Uh, years ago, I started that Facebook group uh, for festival directors to have a place to kind of talk and exchange ideas. Um, and because of that, I guess people think that, well, if I want to start a film festival, I'm going to start calling John. And I get literally calls every week, probably two or three a week, asking me to help them start a film festival. And the first thing I ask them is, why? And if they can't answer that in a decent way, then I just say, you know, just tell them to move on. But I, w- I wanted to find out from other people why they started their film festivals and, and sort of the war stories of what that was about uh, and what they've learned since. Uh, I think I have 15 people in the book so far. Um, I think that's probably what it's going to end up being. Uh, some of them are huge festivals like uh, Tribeca and uh, South by, and some are very small festivals, very niche festivals in you know, uh, a small college town with an attendance of less than you know, 2,000 people. But I think that the stories, there's a lot of similarities in people's stories. There's... Uh, a lot of good advice from people you from places you'd never thought you would you would hear good advice uh and i think that it's i think it's important if you want to start something like a film festival which potentially has the has the ability to last for many many years way longer than you would be involved with it that uh, you hear from people who have done this about what types of events to create and how to create something that is something of meaning and substance so what constitutes a good reason these days, and how is that different from, from when you started uh, DC Shorts? 
I think for a while, I think, you know, years ago, people were starting film festivals because there was no other way for people to see these films in their community. And I still think that if you're in a small community, that makes a lot of sense. If you live in a, a place that doesn't have an independent movie theater and there's no way for your audience to see really great short films or features and docs uh, that, you know, people really have a craving to see before they end up on Netflix and HBO, then I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I hear a lot of people who want to create either economic development festivals, which I don't necessarily have a problem with. I sort of have a problem with how they fit into the scheme of it, but small towns that want to create a festival just because they want you know, people to come in at night to eat at the restaurants and pay for parking. Um, and I get here, and but I think the most requests I hear from are people who want to create festivals that already exist in their region and they just either don't know about it and therefore don't want to help them or they have some sort of animosity towards that event and they want to open a competing event and I'm just like, hey, it's not like McDonald's. You can put them on every corner. It's a, a very different type of game. What is the outlook for festivals that start, you know, given the fact that pretty much everything does end up online, especially short films these days? I mean, right. Well, I, I, you know, I think that festivals, the ones that are successful are the ones who understand who their, first of all, who their audience is and what their audience is expecting and what they can deliver to their audience that is unexpected. Um, I know, like, for me, when I'm programming DC Shorts, they're the films I know the audience will eat up, so I program those. And then the films that I, I believe they need to see, that they're important, that they're either newsworthy or thought-provoking or just difficult in general. And But I know what of those films they're able to accept versus the ones that will just either go over their head or incite riots, which has happened in the past. Um, I think festivals that understand their audience really do well. I also think festivals that understand their place with filmmakers do really well. I think that a lot of festivals are thinking about one or the other and not both simultaneously. They're either very concerned about the filmmakers and the filmmakers' uh, ability to be at a festival or their participation. And then others are more concerned about the audience and ticket sales and the minutiae of that and not really worrying about the filmmaker. And there's a really happy medium in between in which I think that's where festivals that, that worked towards that goal sing. So you mentioned um, films starting quote unquote riots. Uh, can mm. you give an example of, of an audience reaction that was you know, surprising or riotous? Well, I, so in DC, we can't necessarily show overly political films <laughs> because it's day work. And our audience, when, whenever we've shown something like a really cute, funny short about the extreme right or the extreme left, we get a lot of people very angry very quickly. And it was explained to us through a lot of audience surveying that, again, that's what they do during the day when they go out at night and plunk down 15 bucks to walk into a movie theater. They want to be entertained and not think about what they just left behind on their desk. And so I get that. We don't really show... you. You wouldn't believe how many overly political films we have submitted to us. Although it says on our submission site, you know, do not send these types of films in that, you know, we can't program them. Our audience won't sit through it. Uh, we still get plenty of them and uh, we just can't show them. 
It's interesting because I, I think uh, people do um, probably send you those films thinking that DC is the perfect place for right. those, those things to end up. Yes. That's so uh, an, an interesting contradiction of, of the expected. Right. Um, and all the more reason to, uh, to <laughs> read submission details uh, carefully. So how long ago did you start DC Shorts? Uh, this is our 12th year. Talk a little bit about why DC needed a shorts film festival at that time. Sure. So I had in the, I went back to, I had owned a graphic design and marketing firm for many, many years and got tired of it and really burnt out. And in 2000, 1999-2000, I went back to film school because it was the beginning of digital video. And I could see, and I was at the very cusp or the forefront of um, digital design. So I knew that this was going to be the next big thing. So I wanted to be part of that. And that, and I really wanted to, I thought that through design I was storytelling, but it was, it was very two-dimensional. And um, while I was creating marketing stories, et cetera, it wasn't the same as if I were to show it on a large screen. So I figured I want to go to film school where you can see my genius because it'd be 20 feet tall. I had a, a, soon afterwards, I think in 2001, 2002, I had a film that ended up playing about 50 or 60 festivals around the world. It was, uh, at the time, the most successful gay-themed short film called Cyber Slut. You can watch it online. It's very dated now. Anyway, so I traveled, and I was really disheartened by a lot of festivals, especially some of the more prominent ones, because I realized that they were about money and parties and sponsors and filmmakers who made features. But as someone who made shorts, I was, for the most part, an afterthought. And... It just it was very disheartening because you know traveling around the world for a year and a half on your own dime is really expensive, and while I made the contacts I thought were important, I just felt like it wasn't the easiest system. It could have been a lot easier, and it could have been a lot nicer. So when I came back to DC through a lot of really interesting, fortunate circumstances, I had access to a small theater, and I called a friend of mine and I said, "Listen, I don't know how to I don't know how to run a film festival. I d- I know how to do event planning." I know lots of filmmakers I've met for the past year and a half along the way. Um, I know what not to do. I know how to market this thing. I'm going to start a film festival and we'll see what happens. And the first year was literally calling on filmmakers I had met through my travels, um, their friends and their friends, uh, setting some films. It was a one day event, three screenings. Um, I honestly thought that no one was going to show up, uh, until a friend of mine at the Washington Post put a very small calendar blurb in um, and a recommended, a recommended star. And uh, next thing I knew, there was a line around the corner. We sold out all of our shows. Um, there was obviously a need for it. There was nothing in D.C. like that. We had a large international film festival, um, and we had a very large uh, environmental film festival. Those are both still around. But we really had nothing else in D.C., uh, and nothing that focused on shorts. And I... I love shorts. I think they're they're fantastic. So that's how DC Shorts came to be. Well, tell me a little bit more about that first year. I mean, what was that? What was that feeling like? And and what was well? I, well, it's funny because I ask everyone in the book the same question. You know, what was your biggest fear that first year? And everyone says the same thing that no one would show up. Um, and I and that is a valid fear because you do months, if not years, of planning. Uh, for that first event, and you just hope to God someone will walk through that door. We were very fortunate that we did so well that first year. The other thing I, w- I really wanted to instill in the DNA of the event from the first year was that it 
I wanted it to be a filmmaker's event. I, uh, while I want to respect my audience and make sure that they're happy and they see great stuff, I want to make sure that I create an experience that filmmakers really want to attend and that they're going to benefit from. And because that's the one thing that I thought was missing on my travels around the festival world. Um, the notable exception was uh, the Ashland Independent Film Festival in Ashland, Oregon. It was their first year. And I don't think they knew what they were doing either. And uh, it was a few weeks after 9-11. It was literally like the first flight I could get out of D.C. to the West Coast uh, took me there. Um, and I'm not quite sure if it was that post-11 love fest that people sort of had for one another or the fact that they really, if you got your butt to Ashland, which is not easy to get to, uh, they housed you and fed you and you got to see every film. And I just, I loved, I loved every moment of it. There was just something, it was like summer camp for film, if that makes any sense. And uh, when I came back to DC, I'm like, that's, that's the vibe I want to create. Um, and I can, you know, I put down the planks to make that happen. And it's been building up ever since. Uh, but I honestly think that's why when filmmakers come and they have such a great time, it's because we really try to build an event that focuses on them and their ability to not only connect with audiences, but to really connect with one another uh, and make lasting relationships. Other than getting the the filmmaker part of the equation uh, wrong, what is sort of what are the, some of the common rookie mistakes or misunderstandings about running a festival that people have when they come to you? Well, I think everyone thinks they're going to make a million bucks doing this. <laughs> people are like, "Oh, well, there's so much money at film festivals." I'm like, "On what planet are you from?" Uh, yes, there's a lot of money in the big six uh, because. There are for-profit corporations that are there to make money for their shareholders or owners. Um, they're big events by design. They're big events uh, because they need to be able to raise the big money that they have. It's a self-perpetuating thing. Um, but you know, most people come to me and say, "Well, I have a budget of you know fifty thousand dollars. I have a budget of two hundred thousand dollars." So there's, there's a lot you can do with that if you know how to work it. But it's not you know. It's not a huge amount of money. And if your budget is $50,000, you can't you know, draw a salary of $80,000 because you'd be in the hole and you wouldn't use the money for anything else. Um, so that's the first misconception is that there's a lot of money involved. Uh, the other one is there's a lot of prestige involved, that they're going to create an event that was going to make them the next con uh, or Tribeca. And again, that doesn't necessarily, that takes a long time to happen. I mean, I still think I mean, I, I know what our reputation is uh, among filmmakers and in the festival world. Um, I know what people think what about that. Well, no, I, th I think it's, I mean, we're highly, highly regarded, which I think is great. Although I'm constantly from the mindset that uh, we, there's so much more to do that we could be better. We, we could be even higher, higher regarded. Does that make sense? Like to me, like the ultimate U.S. short festival is Palm Springs. We're never going to be Palm Springs for lots of reasons. But how do we get to a prestige level where people go, I have a short, it's going to be Palm Springs and then D.C. shorts. You know, we're like maybe fifth on that list. How do I get higher up on that list in the mindset of filmmakers is what I'm constantly thinking about. So that's, you know, it's something for me to, it's just something to strive for. I think that's it's, sort of the... the uh, the central lie of the film festival or really any nonprofit 
annual event is that, you know, you put so much effort into the parties and the glitz and the and everything looks like, you know, if you do it right, everything looks like it costs a million bucks. And right. so there's this assumption that because the staff and organizers are, you know, they appear to live the life during the event, right? That they must be just raking it in and everything's, you know, roses. Um, right. No. And I hear that all the time. I hear that all the time from people for potential funders who are like, what a great party. You guys must have plenty of money. And I'm like, no, this party, literally the budget was like $2,200. I mean, and it looks like a million bucks because I'm able to, you know, while my way to better tablecloths and better lighting and, you know, passing the food around instead of having a buffet kind of, you know, it kind of rations it out to people. So they're not, you know, eating it all in one full swoop and then it takes a half an hour to pass it out. And, you know, it's, it's stuff like that. Um, it's about really learning. It's about knowing how to run an event uh, and kind of it's smoke and mirrors. This is what it really is. It's smoke and mirrors, which is movie making. <laughs> what, what, what are you spending money on? I mean, like what are the central costs? Of- our biggest, our two biggest expenses, well, after payroll, um, I can talk about that later. Our two biggest expenses are a theater rent, venue rent, and PR marketing, by far. Um, I would say in a $15 ticket, uh, a buck is going to the theater and a buck is going to our PR person, if not more. Um, Because ultimately, if we can't market the event and attract an audience, then we're not going to have anyone there. And while we're a nonprofit, I come from a very entrepreneurial background. And to me, the event has to at least break even or do 80% on ticket sales. So that's a, that's a lofty goal. I know a lot of festivals, you know, 20% or less of their revenue comes from ticket sales. For us, it has to be really high. So we spend a lot of money to bring that in. So those are the, those are the two biggest expenses. Parties? Low, low on the list. Um, filmmaker accommodations, low on the list. We, we really negotiate a good hotel rate for filmmakers. We put lots of people up in free housing, and we do lots of that stuff to make them to make it look bigger than it is. Um, I have to say, I have to say, lighting is a big part of it. <laughs> lighting, really? Yeah, we invested a few years ago in these great uh, LED uplights for parties that we can use for lots of stuff. It changes the entire venue when you can wash it in a color, or you can, you know, change the look of a really crappy room that was given to you by a donor or a restaurant to to make it look kind of glitzy and glamorous. It's a uh, there's a lot to be said for that. So it's so almost literal smoke and mirrors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, um, uh, turning our attention back towards uh, the, the the filmmaker side of things. Sure. Um, DC Shorts is. Uh, one of the things that filmmakers know about it primarily is that if you send your film there, you're going to get some kind of feedback. Feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that, I mean, I could make a guess, but some of the story of how that came about and sort of what process you went through to formalize that. Um, well, it came about because I was sick and tired of as a filmmaker sending out packages to festivals where at the time cost me like 50 bucks a piece between 
making or having a DVD burn because you really couldn't burn your own DVDs then. So this is a long time ago. This is when the the prehistoric animals were still making the DVDs for us. Um, and uh, I, you know, I would spend this kind of money and I would get rejected, and I didn't understand why, especially since it would play a very similar festival in the next region over, etc. Um, and so I, I really wanted filmmakers to get something for their submission fee other than just a rejection email. And so to me, the feedback was, was a key part of that. And in the first few years, you know, when we only had a few hundred submissions, it was easy to do it on paper. And at that point, we basically just took the notes from the judges and we had a day where, it, you know, we sent out the rejection letters and said, you can call the office on these three dates and we'll sit there and tell you what we thought. Um, and then, uh, I would say about eight years ago, nine years ago, we, for, we, uh, formalized it into a software system that we had built and we're on, actually on our second system now. Well, so part of the process that I developed for picking films, uh, goes back to this idea of getting the audience as involved as possible and really programming to your audience. I I realized a long time ago, I like films for very different reasons than my audience likes films. I like a very specific type of story. I like, I like very quirky. I like very European sensibility. There's a lot of things I like that my audience enjoys, but doesn't want to see, you know, 120 films like that, that in or, and in order to provide feedback for all these films we were getting, it meant you had to watch the films in their entirety. Um, and when we were getting, you know, up to 500, 800, and now 12, 1300 submissions a year, there was no way I was going to be able to watch that many films. Um, so we have a first round of screeners or reviewers is what we call them now. Uh, and that's this year, I think we had 95 reviewers. Uh, they're broken into virtual teams. Everything is now done online. Uh, they log into a system that we built. They're given a deadline and maybe like 10 films in a, a two week period to watch. They log in the system. They watch the films. It's all online again. Uh, which, you know, since we got rid of DVDs two years ago has made life much easier. And then they have to write a critique, um, based on five pointed questions we give them. So, uh, uh, since we publish it online, I can tell you the first question we ask is, do you like this film? Uh, second question is, do you recommend this film for the festival? And if they recommend it, they have to give it a score of zero to, or one to 10. 10 meaning I absolutely love it and can't imagine you not programming it. And like a five being, meh, I liked it, but whatever. And uh, one being, I recommend it, but, you know, I, I don't necessarily stand behind my recommendation. <laughs> uh, and then we asked them the five questions. The first question is basically, what is this film about? We asked them to basically write a log line for the film. Because I think when filmmakers send out a film, they think their film is about A. And I watch their film and it's about X. It's about something that's completely different. And I think that, that if we frame the review in that context, where this is what we saw, uh, that, that helps a lot. Um, then we ask, what was the high points of the film? What were the low points of the film? Why, why this film is appropriate for our audience? Meaning, uh, why do you think your film, your friends and family would want to see this movie? And then the last question is, why did you or did you not recommend this film? And then there's a, a sixth question, which only I get to see, which is uh, notes to the programming team. 
So it might be something like this is really ultra violent, but really enjoyable, or you know, th th this was almost too sexy. It was almost pornographic, that type of thing. So I can take a look at that or something like, I just absolutely love this film, but if you don't program it, I'm coming to your house to beat you. So um, I get notes like that. Uh, and then, so I, we use that information to take it to the second round. The second team watches the films, uh, makes some notes. And then when we open the submit, the process, which we just sent out, or we're sending out letters next week. Um, in the letter, it was saying, you know, you did get in, you did not get in. Um, and this is what we think of your film. Click here and it takes you back to the website and you can see, uh, the two or three reviewers comments. They're anonymized. Uh, there's no name or identifying information. It would just say, uh, reviewer one, female, attorney, fifties, reviewer two, male, twenties, student. So they have an idea of who watched their film, but they don't get any information. Uh, and then filmmakers actually have the ability to, uh, there's a feedback form in there that they can write back to us um, and we will contact them if their points are valid. And so, then how, how does that feedback generally go? Well, I mean, yeah, you, you, you always get the emails that you're the antichrist and you have no idea what you're doing and, you know, or, you know, this film was picked up at, you know, this played at, you know, Sundance and Palm Springs and you didn't take it. And, you know, that's, that's great. You played two biggies. You just didn't get into ours. It didn't fit with what we were doing this year. It's, um, so, you know, some of the feedback is useful. Some of it is not. Um, but it, it helps me get, get a better grasp on how to better train reviewers for the next year. Um, our training process is ever evolving. Um, especially when you have that many people involved, you need to constantly keep it moving. Um, but I have to trust the system. I mean, there's a lot of films that we don't take that probably are really good, or when I watch them, are really good, but our reviewers just didn't get them or didn't like them. And if, if three of my audience members didn't get it, then I can't make the assumption that the other 250 people in the room are going to get it either. So I sort of have to trust the system I built. Um, and it's tough. It's tough. Because a lot of times I see films when I'm traveling at the festivals that I absolutely fall in love with. And I you know, bring them back and I throw them in the system and they don't score well at all. And I'm just like, well, what are you thinking? But I just have, again, I have to trust that system that those are the films that ultimately the audience wants to see. You have a, a little corner of, of shorts that you play just for yourself or do you trust the system? <laughs> I sneak one or two in if I can, if I really think that they're going to work. Um, and I definitely have favorites going in. Um, but no, I mean, you know, I just, I literally just finished programming on Thursday. Um, and it's difficult. There were a lot of films that got, you know, like an A plus plus that aren't programmed. They just didn't fit in because the time didn't fit in or there were three of the same theme or whatever. And I just, I, I just couldn't work it in. Meanwhile, there were some things that were on the pile of no that I put back in because I thought that they were interesting or they had some sort of angle I could sell to the media, which is, you know, part of the decisions I have to make in order to sell tickets. What's your maximum length on your submissions? We say 20, but this year I think our longest film is 30. I think we took a the 30 this year. Um, it's hard. We're, we're trying to do 90 minute programs. 
because on the opening competition weekend, it's 90 minutes of screening and 30 minutes of Q&A and turn around the theater. So it gives us a two and a half hour window. We're trying to throw in as many screenings as possible. Um, this year, we're actually um, reining the festival in a little bit. We have a new executive director. And in order for it to be successful for her, we've decided to forego a venue um, because I think it's important that she is comfortable running the events so she can run it in the future and let it grow. Um, and I think it was also time. And when we started the festival uh, 12 years ago, there was nothing else to do that weekend. We always are the first weekend after Labor Day. Uh, there was nothing else to do in D.C. at that time, so we did really well for a few years. And now we are competing with so many other events. Uh, I mean, last year alone, we competed with two beer festivals, two outdoor community festivals, which are huge. I mean, one draws 20,000, the other one draws 30,000 people. Um, and like a major concert. So, you know, we're trying to draw people in. It's difficult if we're not just competing against other film festivals or we're not even competing against film festivals. We're, we're competing against other events. And of course the biggest thing I think everyone's competing against, whether they want to admit it or not is apathy and the ability to sit on your couch. What are you, what are you providing that people want to see that will make them want to get off their couch? So how do you market, you know, a short film program? Um, like those are, notoriously difficult to, to draw people to. Yeah, so I made the decision early on that we were not going to be doing thematic programming, that we don't have a doc block and an animated block. We do what I call the tapas platter approach, uh, that in a 90-minute program you see probably between 8 to 10 films uh, from all over the world with all kinds of different stories. You're guaranteed to see at least one doc, one animated, a comedy, a drama, uh, something local, something foreign, um, usually an experimental or a music video in there also. So we try to give a, a wide range of stuff. So the way we sort of sell it is in 90 minutes, you can see the world um, because you can, you know, and give us, you know, 180 minutes and you see much more of that world. Uh, but we really want people to be exposed to as much of a worldview of cinema in as short of a time as possible. So that's kind of our programming strategy. Um, we do repackage certain films uh, midweek uh, because we know they sell. Like we do an LGBT screening. Um, this year, I believe we're going to be doing... We used to do a, fo a country focus. We got rid of that. It was just too difficult working with embassies, and they were losing their money, so it, didn't, it was a lose-lose for us. Um, but like last year, we did a special show of sci-fi fantasy films because we have so many time travel superhero movies. Um, this year we're going to do one called The Modern Relationship, uh, which is not just going to be romantic relationships, but friendships um, and some other definitions of relationships. We're going to show that one night. Um, so, but that's really our only thematic type of programming. So 13, 1,300 submissions these days, mm -hmm. um, roughly. And, and Yeah, and we have decided, well, I have decided that if we're going to continue with this giving feedback to everyone, max out at 1,500. We honestly cannot review more than 1,500 films in a way that makes sense. 
Um, and so this year we had a little thermometer on our entry page and we updated it every two days, let people know how many entries we had left. Uh, next year, I'm pretty sure we're going to hit the thermometer before the deadline. So you're going to cap the number of entries that you'll take or just the number of entries? Oh, okay. The number that we'll take because at some point we can't take any more. We can't, we don't have enough people to watch them all. Right. So, um, maybe we'll do something where if you don't want the feedback, there'll be a different process. Hmm. Uh, but if you want the feedback, uh, you know, it's interesting because I've been talking to people about this one about the, you know, in the book thing. It's some, there are a lot of festivals out there that don't charge a submission fee. And one person said, yeah, we get 4,000 submissions, but because we don't charge a fee, we don't feel we're compelled to watch the entire film or the film at all. And I was like, well, that's really interesting. And as long as that's in your entry rules, I get it. Um, but that's, that's fascinating to me. I feel that because we're giving this feedback, we are compelled to watch the film in its entirety. We only have one escape clause for that, and that's if you if the film is over 15 minutes, and you know within the first five that there's no way it's ever going to be programmed, that you have to watch at least 10 minutes, and then you can review the film, and it has to say in your review that you stopped it at the 10 minute mark because you just couldn't watch anymore. I have to spare people at some point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the longer I do this, the more different you know methods of submissions and screening and decision-making I learned about, and they're all, you know, roughly the same. They're all, we get at least a couple people to watch it or a decision-maker to watch it. Right. And we sort of pull the room. There's no way that our decision-makers can watch every single film, but, um, you know, how much of the film gets watched and, um, you know, certainly, I don't think I've ever heard of a festival that just won't watch. I mean, it's certainly with a, with no, no submission fee, like that's, that's a reasonable thing to stipulate. And I guess they make that decision based on the description of the film or. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, this festival was very small, right. Has a small staff. I mean, it's all volunteers. And I was shocked to hear how many they, and that's just submissions. That's not a thousand. They curate. Then when she yeah. visits other festivals that she sends invitations to. So that, that was sh shocking to me. Um, but I get it. I, I, you know, there's part of me that at times when I'm watching these, I'm thinking, wow, wow. I almost wish I didn't take your money. So I didn't have to watch this. <laughs> well, then that brings up a, a good point. Like, why do you think it is that people can be so, bad at evaluating their own work relative to, you know, the, the rest of what's out there. I mean, um, so I have two answers to that. Uh, first is the mommy syndrome. The, my mother likes it. Therefore it has to be good because, but your mother's not going to tell you it's bad because that's not a mother's job. Um, and I get a lot of that. So I said, so there's three, there's that there's the self-importance issue we get a lot of filmmakers who are very self-important and they believe that whatever they touch must be amazingly good and therefore how their film as bad as it is has to have redeeming value uh or more than redeeming value and then the third is i i see this from a lot of young filmmakers and this is the generation that grew up in which everyone there's no winning at the softball game everyone plays and you just have a good time 
um, that, you know, everyone wins the competition, that no one says no to you, blah, blah, blah. And it's coming back. I mean, now, now they're entering the real world and they're finding out that, well, not everything you do is fabulous. Um, and people are going to tell you that. And that's difficult for them to hear. And it's sort of difficult for me and others to, to deal with because it's almost irrational behavior <laughs> from an older generation, I guess. Yeah, I think every, as every generation ages, they see some of that in, um, in younger people. Yeah. But um, I did see an interesting article not too long ago from an anonymous educator who basically said that he's changed the entire way that he teaches and grades and over the last two decades because hurting somebody's feelings um, can be, you know, a punishable offense, you know, that all someone has to do is complain that the teacher made them feel small or, or whatever. And you know, that there, there's disciplinary action taken. And I don't know if that's a result of ch- changing attitudes in parenting or, or whatever. And this is going way. But it's a trickle down thing and it, it's trickling down to the festivals now that we're seeing this out of filmmakers. We've seen this behavior out of filmmakers too. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, what, I've been doing this for 10 years and you've been doing it for longer. Um, and I've been watching movies, you know, as a, as a critic for 10 years before that. And, you know, there's been crappy movies and people with entitlement, you know, about right. how good they're moving for forever. I think maybe we're seeing more of it because it's easier to make movies now. Well, I, th- I, I agree with that. I think it's easier to make movies. And I think that, I hate to talk about this, one, but there's a self-perpetuating issue with film schools. You know, when I was choosing to go to film school 12, 15 years ago, 15 years ago, I, there was only a handful of schools to go to. Uh, now every university seems to have a film program because from a university's point of view, they're relatively inexpensive to start a film department, you know, maybe a million or two in equipment and staff. Uh, they're very profitable. They're very sexy. Um, they bring lots of students in, but they teach, they're not teaching the basics of filmmaking in the sense that they're not really teaching how to storytell and they're not teaching how to write. They're teaching, they're, they're throwing cameras at kids and saying, this is how you use the camera because the camera is cool. And this is how you use the after effects because After Effects is really cool. And they're teaching all that stuff, but they're not really teaching the basic building blocks of filmmaking. And they're not teaching team building, which ultimately is what filmmaking is, because filmmaking is a team effort. You can't make one alone. Um, so these kids are graduating with no... The, the really talented ones will rise to the top and they will do well. That's a, that's a given. But the rest of them, the other 95%, are leaving these schools with no real prospects for a job. So they go back and get their MFA in the, at these film programs. Uh, and then they leave and they still can't get a job because they weren't that talented to begin with. So what do they do? They go and teach at these schools as adjunct professors. Um, and now you've got sort of the blind leading the blind. Meanwhile, I'm asked all the time to teach courses at schools. And when I say I don't have an MFA, they won't talk to me anymore. And I'm like, but I have, you know, 15 years of industry experience, you know, and they're like, well, but we need, you need those letters. 
And I said, well, this is what's, this is kind of the problem. We're, we're perpetuating this idea of film schools assigned the idea that filmmaking is sexy and it's cool and you're going to make your first short film and it's going to sell at Sundance and you're going to have a, you know, $2 million deal and you're going to make features like you've always wanted to make. And it, that doesn't happen. That's, it's a fantasy world, but they're selling that fantasy to sell educations. It's a, it's a, it, but it is trickling down because those student films ultimately was being sent to short festivals. My favorite film school story uh, is from a client I had a few years ago who came to me with a 20-minute film that she had made in, you know, in film school, and she was trying to get this out to festivals. And I, I basically said, look, your film's too long. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got too much film for the story that you have. And she said, well, yeah, but that's sort of the deal with film schools. Like, you have a junior project, and it's a 10-minute short film, and then you have a senior project, and it's a 20-minute short film. And I said, that, that sounds backwards to me. Like, by the time you get through film school, you should be able to tell a 20-minute story in 10 minutes. You know, not, not literally. Right. But you should be able to do it economically and, and get it down to the, you know, well, it's ridiculous. So it's but, backwards anyway. Well, no I, no, I agree with you. I know people who teach at some of these schools that actually have experience. And they say, they would tell the students, listen, you... You have up to 20 minutes, and all the students here is 20 minutes. I have to make it 20 minutes. And I'm like, no, it can be five. It can be five amazing freaking minutes of cinema that I can't wait to see again and again and again. Or you can make a 20-minute opus that no one will ever want to touch. These are, these are your options as a student. You decide what you want to do. I sit on the board of two different film schools, um, and when I go to watch senior showcases, it's obvious who has the talent. They're the ones who have the shorter films. They're the ones who tell really succinct, amazing stories that need to be told, not the same hackneyed plot over and over and over again. So, You mentioned selling films at Sundance. Um, yes. <laughs> which, for short films. Uh, sounds like a little bit of a pipe dream to me, but I think you'd, yeah, it is. you'd be more in the know about what, distribution prospects for short films are i mean are there in the u.s not really there's a a few compilation programs that will put yours together on a dvd or a package that they can be sold online or um there's still a few traveling short showcases that travel the country but for the most part in this country no unfortunately european uh and asian distributors yes um there's an entire market of shorts out there. They're broadcast on television. There's a there's an appreciation for shorts as a format, um, and there's a there's a market there that you're able to sell to. Um, I was fortunate. I was able to sell my film, uh, that Cybersight film, to a Canadian and a German distributor, um, and I got royalty checks for a few years. I mean, nothing great. I mean. I couldn't buy a trip to Germany on it. <laughs> I couldn't even buy a trip to Canada on it, actually. Not even the gas to Canada. Um, but I was able to sell it. Uh, and that, to me, was a huge a huge success. Um, you know, d- the distribution of shorts now is such that, you know, after you play your festival circuit, you throw it online, and there are very few ways to make money doing that either. You can either put it on YouTube and pray you're going to get a million visitors so you get your, whatever is it, $100 per million. 
um, or uh, well, you might be able to a feature to Netflix, but you're not going to get a lot for that either. But you will get people watching it, so which I think ultimately is the key. Or to me, as a filmmaker, why did you make a movie? Did you make a movie so that you can hold on to it, so you might get into a major festival, or did you hold on? Did you make it so that lots of people would see it? So you're going to play every tiny festival that says yes to your film, um, and agree to do things like online for a limited time, et cetera, so as many people can watch your movie as possible and hopefully parlay that sort of success into an audience for your next project. So when you go to festivals or, or go to classes, um, what's sort of the advice that you, you lead with these days? What do, what do filmmakers need to know about making movies and getting into festivals? Uh, well, it's all about storytelling. That's the first thing. It's all about writing and all about storytelling. Filmmaking is visual storytelling. And if you don't have a compelling, interesting story to tell, then you've got nothing. And it boils down to good writing. And if you really need to learn how to write, um, scripts don't just magically appear. So that's number one. And the second one, which I think is sort of my motto, is there's a festival for every film, but your film is not for every festival. And that means that you might have a great film, but it might not be for my festival. It's not for my audience or tastes or timing or whatever, but there is a festival that's for that. And you just have to, your job as a filmmaker is to do that research to find that. And again, there's no magic bullet. There's no magic list that says what it's going to be. It's a lot of research that filmmakers have to do. And it's not that difficult to do the research. It's just time consuming. And by the time most filmmakers think about this, they've already, they're finished, they're past post-production, they're tired, they're broke, and the last thing they want to do is spend another week or two doing some research. Um, uh, and I think the third thing, as I say, that festivals don't program the best films. They program the best films that are made available to them that fit within the time constraints they have, that match their audience's taste, that match what the programmer wants that audience to experience, that match what the zeitgeist of, of filmmaking is that year, uh, that play well with other films, that don't repeat themes over and over again that are already repeated by other possibly better films, um, and that ultimately help to build an experience that festivals are trying to create. That, so there's a lot of factors in there to pick those films. It's not just, oh, these are the 10 top scoring films, these are the 10 films I'm going to put into this program. There's a lot more that's involved with it. I think that when filmmakers hear that, they're like, oh, I didn't know. And I think the fourth thing is that I, if I were a filmmaker, I would insist, or I do insist, the, you need to start going to film festivals. You need to see what else is out there. Because as a filmmaker, you are competing for a spot in a film festival. Um, I mean, this year we had 1,300 submissions and we took 123 films. You know, you had a you know, a nine percent chance of getting in. You know, why? Why is that? What? What? What about those? You know, nine percent were better than the. I can't do the math. The ninety-one percent. And if you, if this, I think a lot of those filmmakers, if they had gone to more festivals and seen what was out there, they would have. They a wouldn't have made the same film someone else made, or if they were going to make a film on the same themes and subject matter, they would have done so 
and a very different way of telling that story so that it was more compelling uh, or would maybe want to take that one over the other. So the, the basic question is, do you do training for your reviewers yes, on do. the basics of what, what a good film is? Yeah, it, it's a, well, we, have a, we do a six-hour training, and that involves watching a few films and taking a break and playing a game. But, um, yeah, no, we talk about what types of films we have programmed in the past. We talk about the types of films that people like to watch. We have our... our um, reviewers we, we just pass the mic around and people talk about the types of films they love to watch so they have an idea of what other people want to see and then we talk about how to write that review we have a and i'm happy to if you want to email me i'm happy to send you our training manual but we break down how to write a review what what are appropriate phrases what are inappropriate phrases what doesn't work things like it's okay it's too vague it doesn't uh, there's nothing substantial that you need to be specific uh, you don't necessarily need to be kind but you need to be targeted uh and so we'd spend a lot of time on that uh and then we show a few films that have not been programmed yet i mean they're they're in their queue uh and by show of hands try to get ideas of what people thought of the films gives me which gives me an idea of because it's usually the first time i've seen these films too okay so i don't like this film how many of my reviewers are going to like this and how many are not or i love this film uh how many are gonna like it how many are not gonna like it so that gives me an idea of what to expect from the reviews I'm going to be reading. But uh, the person who wants help with the training, give me a call. I'd be happy to talk to you about it because it's, uh, it, it took a long time. We had a, I thought I was doing it right for a few years and I wasn't. And then I had a volunteer who wrote training manuals for a living to rewrite the training manual from top to bottom. So it made much more sense. And we basically have kept the same format since because um, it works. Um, I've been lucky to get a good number of, uh, into a good number of festivals. Well, the Hallmark is a well-run festival that filmmakers should go to. Um, you should go to the festivals you think you're going to have the better opportunities to connect with an audience and to connect with other filmmakers. When I used to watch my film, when I used to go to a festival, I wouldn't watch my film on the screen. I'd seen it. Why would I need to watch it again? I would turn around and I would watch the audience and watch what their reactions were. Um, and for my first film, lines that I thought were serious, people laughed at, and lines that I thought were really funny, people, uh, uh, they, they, didn't, they didn't laugh at all. And that's when I realized that my sense of humor is sort of backwards. So when I went to go write my next film, which was a comedy, I wrote it very seriously. And it was hysterical. People loved it. Because um, that, maybe that's my sense of, uh, of comedy. Um, but you need to be able to go to an event in which you can really connect with audiences. Lots of opportunities, either through parties or lounges or hopefully better yet Q and A's and uh, discussion periods with filmmaker uh, with the audience. And hopefully lots of opportunities. We can meet other filmmakers and talk about talk shop and talk about what, not just the current film you're on, but what your next project is and how to, this is your skill set. This is, the other guy's skill set, how can you merge those together into making your next film combined even better? Um, I wouldn't necessarily go by the, the size of the festival meeting anything. I, I, you know, I, I tell filmmakers, you might play a really small festival and go to a sellout of 300 seats, um, or you might play a big festival and you're doing it because you want that, those laurels, but you know, 50 people show up. 
well, did you make a movie for 50 people or for 300 people? What's more important in the scheme of things to you? So pick the festivals based on what you think um, will have the best screening for you. And a lot of that is talking to the programmer after you're accepted and say, hey, you know, what can I, what can I honestly expect? I mean, I talked to a filmmaker the other day, someone who I really love. We took their film. We couldn't fit it in the main programming. We put it into our family programming, which is only playing at libraries uh, throughout the city. And I said, listen, don't come to Washington. I love you, and I'm saving you $1,000. Don't come to Washington. You're not going to have that audience experience. Um, and it's not for this film, it's not worth it. For your next film, I'll try to get it back into the main programming, and then you come back to DC. So I'm really honest with filmmakers about that. Yeah, I would also just cap on that if you look at their website, there are a lot of clues there. Um, their website and their submissions process can give you clues into A, how well organized they are, and B, how much attention they're paying to, to filmmakers. I mean, if there's a frequently asked questions page just for filmmakers that answers those frequently asked questions um, and and sort of gives you the feeling that they're paying attention to filmmakers and they have filmmakers in mind, that tells you a lot. If you're seeing a site that maybe hasn't been updated real frequently or, you know, sort of emphasizes the number of celebrities they've had attend, even like, uh. like I see minor celebrities lined up in a row on a fr the front page of a website to the exclusion of almost everything else. Yeah. The first impression is like, these people are, are not in it for the filmmaker, right? right. Yeah. Or the glitz and the glamour and the, you know, the star seeker kind of thing. There are exceptions to all of those, but you just uh, need to take your clues as you can get them. Uh, so how did you find out what your festival audiences liked and didn't like? Was it trial and error? And how long did it take? Yes. To get a good how <laughs> long did a, it take? It took a few years. Well, we do a lot of, we do a lot of surveying. I'm really, I'm a huge data geek which was another webinar I did with you ages ago. Um, I'm very much about data collection. So we do uh, on-site surveying of audiences. We do, um, well, we do an audience vote for every uh, film too. So I can tell from that what they liked and what they didn't like. I mean, films that get very few votes, there has to be some reason why they got very few votes versus the one that got lots of votes. Um, and that sort of helps gauge stuff. And usually the ones that don't get a lot of votes, the, the films I kind of like a lot. Um, um, and that's one of the reasons we built that system in which most of the reviewers are our former audience or our audience members. Um, because if the audience, if those people like the film, then I'm pretty sure my audience is going to like the film too. We have a lot of filmmakers and a few industry people in that uh, first round committee also. Um, but I would say 70% of them are audience members and volunteers that just want to participate more. Next question about the investor. Yeah, a large investor has taken the festival and is using it for personal agendas. How do you get that to change without upsetting the person, keep their money coming? Well, um, part of that is being upfront when they make that donation, say, thank you very much. It's, this isn't going to influence uh, programming. Um, if it's someone who really wants to control programming, maybe you shouldn't be taking the money. Um, or maybe you should be offering some sort of special honorary award with their name attached to it that they get to pick. Um, but that's a tough one. 
I, and it, it, it's, a, it's a weird line. I know we straddle all the time. We're talking to a possible major, major sponsor this year. Uh, and they want naming rights. And I'm like, well, above the name and below the name. It's one thing if it's going to be, you know, brand presents DC Shorts or DC Shorts Film Festival presented by brand. Um, and so that's something we're constantly kind of worrying about. And But in our contract, our agreement, it specifically states they have no influence whatsoever on programming, um, that uh, they're actually coming in after programming is done. So... Um, good, good luck with that. That's, that's tough, especially from a personal donor. I have a friend who runs another organization, theatrical organization that's going through the same thing right now. Took a lot of money to buy a building and now is kind of questioning if that was prudent. So, and then I see there's one more from Wendy in Ashland. Yay. Thank Wendy you for the kind says- yeah, thanks for the kind words about uh, our festival. <laughs> Ashland, is it Ashland Independent? Yes. Uh, 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 that's always the I. Uh, curious to know what your opinions are regarding Without a Box versus Film Freeway. And I should mention that uh, Film Freeway is one of the sponsors of the podcast. So uh, <laughs> that doesn't mean you have to be kind, John. I just mean well, no, no. Well, it's close. I, I am... I am not silent on this topic at all. And there's actually quite a few articles all over the net or me talking about this. I have a, I, I don't, we don't use without a box anymore. Actually, we were actually kicked off of without a box last year for a dispute over what we believe their terms of service were, what they believe the terms of service are. Uh, last year we implemented a new program in which we now use five different submission engines, um, for, um, we use film freeway, real port, fest home, film festival life, click for festivals. Oh, and our own. So six sites all together. Uh, and then we compile all that, or we, we import all that data into our system that does the judging. Um, and I published a paper, which I'm happy to share, and I believe it's in the Film Festival Organizers section of uh, or that group in Facebook also that you can download. But I, I presented a white paper about that last year. How it increased the number of submissions we were getting. I think it increased uh, the quality of submissions we were getting. I think that... Um, and but it and it didn't do it in a proportional way. So that if we got... And I just did the stats for this year too. So this year... 40% of our submissions came in through our site. 40% came in through Film Freeway. Of the accepted films, it was 40 and 40 again. I think 8% came in through Realport. I think 7% of the accepted films came in through Realport. So the, the statistics were pretty even. But I feel like the more sites we use to get films in, the different film was... We're going to have a better selection of different films that we would not have if we were just with Without a Box or Film Freeway or even both. Um, there's especially a lot of European, Asian, and uh, Latin American filmmakers who are don't know about Film Freeway, um, and are and don't want to use without a box because it's difficult for them to sign up. There's a big language barrier there, um, and so they're using these other submission engines that are tailored towards specific regions of the planet. Um, but use as many as possible. Um, I, I'm glad we're not with without a box in a way, and I have no intention of going back anytime soon. Um, we could probably hit that 1300 or 1500 mark much faster if they were in the mix. But I, I can tell you as a festival programmer, we're making more money, not a lot of money, but we're making more money by not using without a box than if we had. So 
So oh, the name of the Facebook page, it's called Film Festival Organizers. You have to request to join the closed group. And then at the, in the instructions, it says to email an email address so we can vet that you are indeed a festival programmer or a festival director and you will be added to the group. There's about 900 people in that group right now. It's a fantastic group. Lots of good stuff. Indeed. Well, John, I think we're out of time, but I want to thank you uh, so much for uh, taking the time out to talk to us. Would you tell people where they can find DC Shorts and find you online? Sure. Uh, DCShorts.com uh, is our website. And I can always be reached at John, J-O-N, at dcshorts.com. Uh, so that's a great way to reach me. Um, and no, I'm happy to answer lots of questions. And uh, I'm always available for consulting, too. So <laughs> uh, the new book, God willing, will come out in September. So it's me called So You Want to Start a Film Festival. Fantastic. And the first chapter is uh, called Don't, right? That's exactly it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, John. Thank you guys very much. Thanks for listening to the Film Festival Secrets Podcast with me, Chris Holland. You can find me at FF Secrets on Twitter or filmfestivalsecrets.com on the web. Please also do visit the campaign to fund more episodes of this podcast. Getmoresecrets.com is the URL for that. You'll be able to listen down on episodes, get early copies of the new edition of the Film Festival Secrets book, and ask film directors and festival directors all your burning film festival questions. See you next time.